I want to pray better, more vibrantly, more often, more joyfully, and with more faith. I want to pray better, and I hope that you want to pray better too. But first, I must learn how to forgive. See, there's a deep connection between prayer and forgiveness, between our ability to pray and our ability to forgive. We see this connection clearly in the prayer that Jesus gave us, his disciples, and taught us to pray. You know that prayer. We've been going through it during Lent. Let's say it together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Did you hear that? Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. This prayer, we, we say it so often, it could become rote. We don't take time to think about what we're saying. But this fifth petition of the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our trespasses, this is hard. This is the part of the prayer that I as a pastor have gotten the most questions about. What is this saying? What does it mean? Is Jesus conditioning his forgiveness of us on our forgiveness of other people. What happens if we can't forgive? What happens if we won't forgive? And how do I forgive those who have hurt me? Those who have hurt me so deeply. Perhaps the most difficult question posed by this fifth petition is on the front of your bulletin. Is forgiving the wicked just? As Father Paul preached during the season of Epiphany, we live in a world that longs for justice. While there might be more and more people who don't believe God exists, there are plenty of people who think the world is not as it should be. We all see the problems in this world, and we want those responsible judged, the wicked. We want someone to come and to make things right, but forgiveness, is that really the solution? Is that what this world needs? Is it just to forgive the wicked who cause all of the problems in this world? The world was shocked in 2006 when 32-year-old Charles Roberts walked into a one-room schoolhouse in Nickel Mines, Pennsylvania, and shot and killed eight Amish schoolgirls. The victims' ages ranged from six to 13 years old. And soon after the police arrived, Charles Roberts committed suicide. It was a horrible tragedy. It shocked the world, not unlike the many school shootings that have unfortunately become commonplace in America today. But the real shock happened after the shooting. 
See, just hours after the shooting, members of the Amish community of Nickel Mines visited the family of Charles Roberts at their home. They comforted Mrs. Roberts, the mother of the shooter, who had found her son's suicide note just hours before. One Amish man reportedly held Mr. Roberts, the father of the shooter, for as long as an hour to comfort him, crying. One day after the shooting, the grandfather of one of the victims told a reporter, we must not think evil of this man. In total, about 30 members of the Amish community attended Charles Roberts' funeral. And Marie Roberts, the widow of the shooter, was one of the few outsiders who was invited to the funerals of the victims. In a letter to her Amish neighbors, Marie Roberts wrote the following. Your love for our family has helped to provide the healing we so desperately need. Gifts you've given have touched our hearts in a way that no words can describe. Your compassion has reached beyond our family, beyond our community, and is changing our world. And for this, we sincerely thank you. This small Amish community in Nickel Mines, Pennsylvania, did the impossible. They forgave Charles Roberts, the murderer of their children. But not only that, this Christian community enacted forgiveness with their bodies by loving, being present to, and comforting the family of their enemy. This is shocking forgiveness. Our world cannot comprehend this kind of forgiveness. And yet, this is the same forgiveness that Jesus calls each one of us to in Matthew chapter 18. The passage begins, as so many Jesus stories do, with a question in verse 21. St. Peter asks, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Peter's question is innocent enough. He's asking about the limits of forgiveness. Peter understands that Christians are called to forgive. After all, Jesus just spent a whole chapter teaching about reconciliation. But Peter wants to know, when is he off the hook? When is a person so wicked that I don't need to forgive them? Peter's question, his very honest question, it puts on display this all-too-human tendency, this tendency that lives in your heart and mine to quantify and qualify, to hem and to haw, to hedge, to hurdle, to define how much is really required of us and how little do we actually have to give. But Jesus does not allow us to play this game. Jesus says to Peter, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. See, Jesus takes Peter's attempt to shrink down God's commandment and completely blows it up. Jesus commands nothing less than unlimited forgiveness. 
John Calvin said the simplest meaning of the 70 times 7 is never give up on anyone. Not your neighbors, not your friends, not your loved ones, not even your enemies. Jesus is pushing against our temptation to measure forgiveness. And we all measure forgiveness. We keep an account of sins, a record of wrongs. For honest, all of us count every time someone hurts us, every time a loved one does something that offends us, every time a friend treats us poorly, every time a coworker disrespects us, we count. And the problem with keeping a record of wrongs and account of sins is that it breeds resentment. The more you count the offenses of another, the more you learn to hate, to be angry. Jesus knows this. And so Jesus warns us, his disciples, in the form of a parable. He tells them a story about something familiar, something all of us know things about. Money, finances, debt. We all have debt. Credit card debt, student debt, a mortgage, a loan. An everyday thing we all know about. But he uses money to explain a more profound truth, a moral truth. The kind of forgiveness God calls us to. And so Jesus tells a story about an indebted man. Let's walk through that story together in Matthew chapter 18. It begins with a king, a lord, who is making an account. He's looking at his ledger to see who owes him what, and he wants to get repaid. And we're told in verse 24 that there's a man who owes 10,000 talents. A talent was a huge sum of money. The best we can tell, a talent was equal to one decade's worth of wages. What you would make in 10 years. This man owes 10,000 talents. This is an enormous sum of money. This is Warren Buffett or Jeff Bezos kind of money. Crazy money. But it doesn't matter how big the debt is, if you can't pay it, there is no hope. You're in trouble. The only solution, the only way to get justice is to sell this indebted man and his family to prison so they can make back what he owes his Lord. Listen to the indebted man's plea in verse 26. He falls to his knees and he begs his Lord, have patience on me and I will repay you everything. Can you hear his desperation? This is a man at the end of his road, at the end of his rope. Forget the fact that no matter how much patience the Lord may have, he cannot repay his debt. It is simply too big. The master knows this. He holds the life of this man and his family in his hands. He holds their future. Justice demands this man be thrown in prison. But the Lord chooses a different way. He forgives. 
In verse 27, we're told that out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him his debt. And this word pity, it's a familiar word. You've heard it here before. It's that Greek word splankna. It means love in the guts, compassion. The master felt for the indebted man in his bones. And so he does the impossible. He forgives everything at great cost to himself. How many of us would give up 10,000 talents for someone else? See, the Lord of this story is meant to represent God. And the actions of the Lord reinforce a point that Jesus has already made, that forgiveness should be limitless. But now we know why. Forgiveness is limitless because God in Christ has shown unlimited forgiveness to us. We are all debtors. We are all this indebted man. Because of sin, we have an enormous debt that none of us could ever pay, no matter how hard we worked, no matter what we did. And yet as our reading from Ephesians chapter 2 says so well, God being rich in mercy because of the great love for which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together in Christ. By grace you have been saved. Thanks be to God. Amen. This is the heart of the gospel. We who did not deserve to be forgiven have been forgiven so much. But the parable doesn't stop there. It keeps going. It could have stopped there, but Jesus doesn't. And so we can't stop there. We have to keep going. See, the forgiveness that we have been shown has consequences. It changes how we live in this world. In verse 28, this formerly indebted man, this same man who was forgiven, goes to one of his debtors, to a fellow slave, and he demands he pay up. This fellow slave owes him a hundred denarii. Pretty good sum of money, but nothing compared to 10,000 talents. But it doesn't matter. This man wants justice. This man wants what is owed him no matter what. He even goes as far as choking the man violently. You can feel the anger and the rage and the resentment that's built up in his heart day after day. In verse 29, the debtor responds with nearly the exact same words in verse 26. Have patience with me, and I will repay you. You'd think the man would have heard, in the voice of his, the servant, his own plea for mercy. You'd think he would have remembered how much he would have been forgiven. But clearly not. He throws the man in prison. So what do we make of this man? This formerly indebted man and his utter inability to forgive. How is it that a person who has been forgiven so much can be filled 
with such malice, hatred, resentment towards a fellow? The answer lies in our memories. The great 19th century Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard once wrote that all of human life moves between recollecting and forgetting. Recollecting and forgetting. Our lives are defined by our memories, by the things that we remember and the things that we don't. So how is your life defined? What do you remember? Do you remember all the times someone has hurt you? All the times a person wronged you? All the times you've been hurt? Or do you remember how you were shown mercy? Do you remember the people who treated you with grace and love when you didn't deserve it? The people who were kind and generous the people who forgave when justice demanded otherwise. Listen, forgiving like Jesus means remembering God's mercy and forgetting the hurt others have caused us. It's a common refrain in our world. I've said it, you probably have too. I forgive you, but I won't forget what you did. I've even heard that taught in a church before. It's a well-intentioned phrase. It's a phrase that's meant to protect the victim, someone who's been hurt. But if we're reading Matthew 18 well, if we're listening to Jesus, if we're comprehending what he's saying, we must honestly say that this is a mistake. This is the same mistake made by the formerly indebted man. He wants it both ways. He wants his own debt forgiven, but he doesn't want to forgive the debts of others. He wants to receive forgiveness, but he doesn't want to give out forgiveness to others. Now let's be clear. Forgetting how someone has wronged you doesn't mean excusing what they have done. True forgiveness means we recognize the offense and we don't reckon it to the offender. We see the sin, we name it as such, but then we choose to love the sinner. Or as Martin Luther said in his sermon on Matthew 18, forgiveness is pretending to not see the sin and instead to see the other with the heart of Jesus. God wants us to forgive Everything, everyone, all the time, everywhere. All offenses, all offenders. And yet, and this is important, God does not want us to suffer as victims. There are certain situations, situations of abuse, where the offender keeps offending time and time again with little sign of repentance. That person, too, needs to be forgiven. But the victim needs more than forgiveness. They need safety. And if that's where you are today, if you are needing safety in a situation of abuse without repentance, please reach out to a member of the clergy. 
this kind of situation requires the church to come alongside you to help. At its core, though, this parable is a warning. It's supposed to scare us. It's a warning against half-hearted forgiveness. Forgiveness in name only. That's how the parable ends. So will happen to you if you don't forgive your brother from your heart. The key to the entire passage is verses 32 and 33. If you have your own Bible this morning, underline, circle, star, listen to the words of Jesus because he is the one speaking to you. I forgave you all your debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? In his desire for justice, this formerly indebted man has become wicked and he has come under the judgment of God. I said it earlier, but let me say it again. This is a difficult passage. And anytime there's a difficult passage, we're tempted to ignore it, to dismiss it, to explain it away, to relativize it, but we can't. This is a difficult passage because forgiveness is difficult. God is calling us, his people, to offer limitless forgiveness to those who wrong us. God is calling us to forget the sins of others just as God the Father remembers our sins no more. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he has removed our transgressions from us. This is true forgiveness. This forgiveness is impossible. But thanks be to God, nothing is impossible with God. This forgiveness is only possible by the grace of God. Because we can't forget on our own. We can't forgive with our own power, with our own strength. We need God's help. We need the Holy Spirit. Forgiveness doesn't happen overnight. It's not automatic. It's a process. It takes time. That's why in our Lenten collect, in the post-communion prayer, we ask for true repentance. We ask for forgiveness, perfect remission and forgiveness. It takes time for us to get there. But make no mistake, this forgiveness is real. We can actually experience this forgiveness today. We believe it. We confess it in the creed. We saw it in Nickel Mines, Pennsylvania. How do we experience this forgiveness today in our own lives? Well, the answer is prayer. I started this sermon by pointing out the deep connection between prayer and forgiveness, between our ability to pray and our ability to forgive. Prayer is an essential part of the process of forgiveness because it is through prayer that we experience the limitlessness of God's love a love that covers all sin. And when we pray, God reshapes our memories to remember his mercy and to forget those who've wronged us. He shows us what to remember and what to forget. 
without prayer, we cannot forgive. But if you're like me, you like to nurse resentment. You like to keep a record of wrongs. Why? Well, it feels good. It gives us power over other people. But listen to this warning. Resentment is a disease of the soul. It is the moral equivalent of cancer. In time, it will kill you. Perhaps not physically. But in time, resentment will close you off to the love of God. It will harden your heart. Resentment will blind you to the truth that all of us are debtors. That none of us deserve mercy. And yet, we all receive it. Jesus forgives us and remembers not us not according to our sins, but according to his love and mercy. And if you're a resentful person like me, then you need to pray. Thank God for Lent. Only prayer can help us remember the grace of God. Only prayer can help us forget the sins of others. If you listen to the world, the world wants you to hold on to your pain, to hold on to how others have hurt you, because the world will tell you that's where your power is. But as Christians, we believe the power of God is manifest in weakness when we forgive other people as we have been forgiven. When we forgive others our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. If you can't pray, if you don't have the words to say, sometimes the words of others help. That's what the liturgy is for. That's also what the witness of the saints is for. So let me close with a prayer by the Anglican priest and poet Malcolm Geith. This is his reflection on that fifth petition. Forgive as we forgive the prayer you give us. Comes home so close, yet radiates so far. We set the limits on our own forgiveness, as generous or as grudging as we are. The wounds we give and take in all our weakness, the injuries that smolder burning slow, the sins that others visited upon us are ours to hold or to utterly let go. You tell the story of the wretched debtor, the one forgiven everything he owed, who then exacted payment to the letter from one whom could not bear the given load. Oh, lift my given load, that I, forgiven, may give away forgiveness, free as heaven. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.